Welcome to tape number two of Renewal of the Covenants, National and Solemn League, A Confession of Sins, An Engagement to Duties, and A Testimony by Alexander Craighead. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Renewal of the Covenants by Alexander Craighead, which we pray you find to be a great blessing in which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing our reading from the preface, head number three, the fifth point of the doctrine proposed from Jeremiah 50, verse 5. The fifth thing proposed was the improvement. One, hence we may be informed that if ever it was the duty of a Christian people to excite one another to enter into covenant with the Lord, it is certainly now in the perjured, blood-guilty, apostate, and backslidden age, in which our Zion is laid desolate like the church of old, Psalm 80, verses 12 through 14. 2. Hence we may be informed what dreadful guilt there lies at the door of pretended Presbyterian ministers, in particular above others in this corrupted age, who cannot deny but that we are the offspring of apostates. Neither can they prove that ever either we or our fathers have returned from this apostasy since our holy covenants were deceitfully broken. Yet although they well know that this awful sort of apostasy has been raging in this realm above fourscore years, Few or almost none of them have ever to this day set the trumpet to their mouths faithfully to warn poor souls of this soul-murthering, God-provoking, and God-dethroning sword. Yea, instead of warning of their people of this, whatever light any of their hearers obtains, either by ancient writers or otherwise, of this sword, they are unweariedly industrious night and day to put that light out by sophistry and perverting of God's infallible word, if possibly, they can, and hence it will be found that almost the universality of the pretended watchmen in this declining age are guilty of the blood of souls. Ezekiel 3, verses 17 and 18. Ezekiel 33, verses 2 to the 10th verse. Isaiah 61, 10, 11, and 12. Isaiah 9, 15 and 16. Hosea 5, 1 and 2. Excuse me, 2. Use. There is just ground to lament that persons in all ranks and stations are so far from exciting one another to join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that almost every one of his, in his station, according to his capacity, appears evidently to use their utmost endeavors to mar and hinder one another in this great duty of national covenanting or of a renewing of the same, which tears of blood are too little to lament for this terrible and grievous defection. Oh, have we not just cause to join with the prophets, with the prophet Jeremiah 9, verse 1, 2, and 3? 3. This unquestionably is the day of Jacob's trouble, and a day in which he is very small, very few lying all night between the porch and the altar and crying, Lord, wilt thou not spare a remnant? Lord, how long shall it be so? When wilt thou return unto these desolations and beautify Zion with thine own gracious presence and let thy priests be clothed with truth and righteousness that thy saints may shout for joy? Use 3. 
with which the sermon was concluded was an exhortation to this long-neglected duty of exciting one another to join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant, not to be forgotten, which might be enforced by many motives. 1. From the lawfulness of covenanting personally, family and national, as hath been proved. 2. From the necessity of exciting one another to this duty, we being all in a great measure strangers to it and very backward to sue to such a sublime work. 3. From the great difficulty of rightly entering into covenant with the Lord or a renewing of our covenant. 4. From the example of the people of God in our text and context. 5. From the becomingness of the thing for Christians to be excited one another to duties. It is necessary to acquaint the reader here that at the renewal of these holy covenants there was only one minister or preacher and he only recovering out of a great sickness, so thoroughly, so through bodily weakness, frequent unwellness, and multiplicity of businesses, could not write but very short and imperfect notes of the sermons preached at that occasion, and some notes that were written were lost, and thus you have but some hints of two of the sermons which were then preached, and no more is here designed to give than hints of them, and these mostly depending upon the memory, so that there may be some things here which were not then spoken, and many not here which were spoken. But to proceed in the narration, after prayer and singing a part of a psalm again, the confessions of sins and engagements to duties, the testimony and the covenants were publicly read, and as to the confession of sins and engagement to duties, we do not imagine that we have particularized every sin that we are guilty of or every duty that we are bound to perform, but we have mentioned such public sins and duties as did then occur to our minds, which both we and others were guilty of and bound to besides that confession of sins and engagement to duties contained in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Again, as to our testimony, although it may appear strange in this declining age, yet we don't suppose that any part of it will be found inconsistent with the word of God or with the faithful testimonies of the witnessing remnant. The lawfulness of holding or lifting up a testimony against the abominations of the age and place in which we live is proved from God's word. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. A faithful testimony is twofold, a witnessing against prevailing corruptions and for the cause of God, the time when there is a necessity for those that would be faithful to God and to their generation to lift up their united testimony is when error and immorality overspread both church and state that their very constitution is corrupted, or when the generality of the members of judicatories, either civil or ecclesiastical, are corrupted, that they shut the doors of the, their judicators, judicatures against the right exercise of government. In such times and circumstances, there is no other method for the smallest number to be faithful to God and the generations, but by joining and lifting up a testimony against the corruptions that abound, and for the right regulation of judicators. 1. That when the very constitution of judicators is corrupted, and it is but in vain to use any other method than lifting a public testimony against them by the smallest number, is plain from the word of God. Job 14, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. James 3, verses 11 and 12. Now that the very constitution of judicatures is corrupted, he that runs may read it, and from a corrupt fountain nothing but corrupt streams can flow, for the effect can never be more noble than its cause. 2. Where the generality of the members of judicatures are corrupt, are corrupted, there is no other method can rightly be used but by testifying against them in a separate way. Titus 3 verse 10. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. 2 Thessalonians 3 6. Such persons will not give ear nor suffer themselves to be reclaimed, but shutting the doors of their judicators against all supplications or entreaties for their reformation, 
mocking, deriding, and abusing of the presenters of them, it appears plain that there is a loud cry at this day for faithful testimonies against the abounding corruptions. As to the covenants, there is no material alteration made, for only the names of several ranks of people that did not join with us in the renewal and names of places were left out, not as some people imagine to cut them out of the covenants or any obligations to them, but only to discover that such did not join with us in the renewal of the covenants, although we are far from imagining, but it was their duty as well as ours. As to the supreme magistrate, we have writ in the margin our minds. The covenants were renewed by solemn swearing to them with an uplifted hand to Almighty God during the time of reading the testimony and renewal of the covenants the sword was drawn about this there were many conjectures some imagine that the sword was drawn for fear of man but this is certainly false again some pretend that it was drawn in rebellion and such like notions but the reason of the swords being drawn at that time was one because no war is proclaimed without a drawn sword and there is no reason that this should be singular in this particular. 2. Because our renowned ancestors were constrained to draw the sword in the defense of their own lives and for the maintaining of a true Presbyterian covenanted reformation. On the account of this alone, to wit, their adhering unto a true Presbyterian reformation, they were persecuted by that cruel tyrant Charles II, by taking away their lives if they would not forsake their religion and turn with the tyrant. And they choose rather to draw the sword in defense of their lives and their religion than to relinquish their religion. And our drawing the sword is to testify to the world that we are one in judgment with them and that we are to this day willing to maintain the same defense of war in defending our religion and ourselves against all opposers thereof. Although the defense of these should cost us our lives or anything that is most dear to us and this we have sufficient warrant for Psalm 94 verse 16 who will rise up for me against the evildoers or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity if these be not evildoers who punish persons for adhering to the true cause of God we know not who are Matthew 10:28 and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Luke 22, verse 36. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garments and buy one. Acts 4, verses 19 and 20. And Revelation 12, verse 11. The third reason why the sword was drawn at the time was because it hath been the practice of the faithful witnessing remnant to renew the covenants with a drawn sword, and we are commanded to follow the footsteps of the flock. Song of Solomon 1 verse 8 We look upon those who resisted unto blood, striving against sin, to be the only true flock of Christ in their day, and, as such, we desire to follow their example in this. This war is not offensive, but defensive, not for falling upon persons to take away their lives, but a defending our own religion and ourselves from all unjust assaults of others, which is allowable unto every creature that hath life. Head number four. Some remarks are to be made upon the following pamphlets. First, upon that piece entitled The Declaration of the Presbyteries of New Brunswick and New Castle. Remark one. By this piece, the Westminster Confession of Faith is ridiculed and slighted, which appears, one, from their asserting in the English eight, excuse me, eighth page, quote, that no part of the 23rd chapter of the Confession of Faith is to be understood as opposite to the memorable revolution and the settlement of the crown of the three kingdoms in the illustrious House of Hanover, end quote. And hence, it is evident that no part of the 23rd chapter of the Confession of Faith is to be taken as it is. For every paragraph of this chapter is directly opposite in plain words to the settlement of the crown in the way and manner in which it was then done. In the first paragraph, it is said that magistrates are for the glory of God and the public good, for the defense and encouragement of them that are good. 
and neither of which can be said according to God's word that settlement is it being prelacy the known inventions of men in the second paragraph tis said they ought especially to maintain piety and justice and what agreement is betwixt this and the sacramental test that pretended liberty of conscience and the like let him that runs read in the third paragraph it is said of civil rulers that it is their duty to preserve unity and peace in the church that the truths of God be kept pure and entire that all blasphemy and heresies be suppressed all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline be prevented or in that house it is hard to tell what is opposite in the last paragraph it is said that infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void by the settlement of the crown no true presbyterian can be admitted to it and in short no other person but episcopal persons alone which proves to a demonstration that prelacy is the claim of right to the throne that is without professing episcopacy no person can be admitted there let their rights or qualifications be what they will this sentence is frequently advanced as a reason for subjection unto the present pretended magistrates but according to the claim of rights it can be no reason because by it not only infidels but also all persons of whatever persuasion except the episcopals have no access to the throne and thus it overthrows this reason for if no person have access to the throne but episcopals which is undeniable then no person can be a magistrate without either being of the episcopal persuasion or that complies therewith by their subjection to the prelatical laws if no part of this chapter is to be understood opposite to the revolution resolution revolution and the settlement of the crown in that house how can any of the chapters be opposite for it is probable that there is no opposition or clashing of one chapter against another with another so there is a manifest overthrowing of all the the 33 chapters and an awful slur cast upon that worthy assembly that professed that they had cast off prelacy and turned from it yet if this declaration be right they have only drawn up articles of faith agreeable to prelacy or at best one chapter which either must agree with the rest or else clash with them either of which to charge upon such a venerable assembly seems a very bold attempt two that the Westminster Confession of Faith is ridiculed and slighted by this declaration appears further from the words in the 11th page which with some in the 12th which are such as these quote only we would not be understood to mean as if every particular direction and circumstance contained therein were of necessary obligation upon us as that for instance we must always begin public worship first with prayer much less than we can now pray for the same afflicted queen of bohemia end quote quote tis observable that in the eleventh page they acknowledge that the directory directs to the right manner of performing the public worship and yet here denies that this is binding on them which appears strange that the right manner of performing public worship should not be binding on them it seems as if they allow themselves to be wrong which doth not agree with godliness again it is a vilifying of the assembly plainly intimating that they spent time in vain giving needless directions and a ready method to cause persons to slight their labor as to the praying for the afflicted queen of bohemia there seems to be a parallel of this in the sacred records ephesians 6:19. as for me can any be so extravagant as to suppose that because Paul is now dead that this part of the sacred record is lost and not binding upon us or that we are obliged to pray for the dead surely either of these would be a gross abuse of the holy word of God the plain meaning must be that this is a command for us to pray for such as our faithful ministers as he was so in the instance above if we pray of any truly reforming or truly reformed queen or queens we are directed to pray for her or them in their affliction in particular again in the same 12th page they say quote we do not see why persons of quality should on that account be exempted from performing of the worship of god themselves in their own families more than others end quote 
Confession of Faith, page 393, is this, it being always free for persons of quality to entertain one approved by the presbytery for performing family exercise in other families where the head of the family is not fit. Again, in the declaration in the same page, quote, in the meeting of persons of diverse families therein disapproved are not to be understood of private societies. Confession of faith in the said page, at family worship a special care is to be had that each family keep by themselves. Let the unprejudiced reader consider what ground there was for such explications or rather a perverting of the directory, and see if the whole of this declaration be not a plain ridiculing of the confession of faith and endeavoring to render it odious in the eyes of the people. And, oh, how contrary is this to the duty of faithful Presbyterian ministers? God knows they may blush to assume the name of Presbyterian ministers. Second remark. Is the direct contradiction in this declaration to itself in the eighth page, they plainly assert that no part of the 33rd chapter shall be understood as opposite to the revolution and to the settlement of the crown in the house of Hanover. And in the same page, they assert that Jesus Christ is the alone king, head, and lawgiver of his church, which is his peculiar sp spiritual and free kingdom, so as none have authority and right to give laws and ordinances to his church as such, but himself only. One. From this, it is evident, as anything can be by words, that these pretended presbyteries steadfastly adhere unto and are a part of the Revolution Church, the abominable state of which the contrariety of its state unto the state of the true Presbyter Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland and the reasons why true Presbyterians should separate from this Revolution Church, we refer the reader unto a book entitled the plain reasons for a true discovery of these things. 2. The direct opposition of these sentences appear in this. The one asserts that Jesus Christ alone is the head and lawgiver of the church. The other, although not in express words, yet in substance that the supreme magistrate is head and lawgiver to the church. For according to the settlement of the crown in the house of An Hanover, it is so, as is undeniable from the coronation oath of William Henry and from the 37th article of the Church of England's faith. And agreeable to these, they have instituted archbishops, bishops, and many other orders of their own inventions, kneeling at the sacrament, crossing in baptism, prayers, Christmas, the sacramental test, tithes, oaths, and abundance of other things. This palpable clashing of sentences must of necessity flow from one of these things, either first, from profound ignorance of the real distinction and plain difference between the state of this revolution church and the state of the true reformed Presbyterian church of Scotland, or second, from dreadful sophistry by mingling of prelacy and Erastianism with the true Presbyterian reformed religion, and by this mixture Antichrist wares may sell the better, and that people may thereby be blindfolded and continue in their state of apostasy either of which kind of teachers is awful. Matthew 15:14. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Colossians 2, verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men. Secondly, some remarks upon a satyr termed Anim Adversions on Mr. Craighead's reasons for receding from the judicatories of this church by Mr. Samuel Blair. Remark first, in general, upon the piece. And one, this author hath not used common manners in his performance, had his writing been the most rustic person in the province. This is so evident through the whole piece that any person that hath common sense may easily perceive it. But this perhaps may be owing to the badness of his cause, or something worse, and much less hath Mr. Blair wrote in a Christian manner. Matthew 5.22 but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. 
Although he speaks of the meekness and gentleness of Christ, yet how little does his writing savor of it, but rather of that warmness of spirit which he speaks against. 2. Mr. Blair says frequently that Mr. Craighead's reasons are groundless, although they include in them a testimony for the Presbyterian Reformed religion, a discovery that the very foundation of the church in these parts is corrupt and proved it to be so by their own acts in Scripture, and yet not one word advanced to prove them groundless, either from the word of God or from any part of the confession of faith, except some few words out of the directory which are only brought for the vindication of one of their number, but only his say-so to prove all, which tis too manifest that Mr. Blair knows that many people take his word instead of the word of God, which implicit faith may pass amongst papists that are bound to believe what the priest says, but tis very opposite to that which the Spirit of God commends the Bereans for when they had an inspired apostle preaching to them, Acts 17, verses 10 and 11. It is very awful when, pers- when persons say so passes current for proof, and it evinces either the weakness of the person or the unsoundness and rottenness of the cause that it will not bear the touchstone of God's word to prove it. Third remark. Is Mr. Blair's vindication of errors or his endeavoring to do so, as, for instance, his endeavoring to vindicate those acts of a pretended synod in his peace? Now, speaking of which, by many people were so abhorred for their erroneous that they were ready to leave those that they had owned for their ministers until the pretended synod was constrained to do something to pacify the people, although what was done was nothing but a blindfolding of them. Again, his vindicating of that erroneous peace termed their declaration, and that peace he wrote in vindication of Mr. Whitfield's errors, many of which he confessed himself were errors. Many other instances might be given of his endeavors to cover or vindicate errors, which is exceedingly dismal. Fourth remark upon particular places, and first, upon some places that appear to be false. 1. Page 7th where he declares to the world in the most open and public manner that he separated himself from us because ever he gave the presbytery the least account that he had such things in his thought. All the ground that we know of that Mr. Blair hath for his assertion is because Mr. Craighead did not go to his sacrament that year, and we have equal ground with him upon this account to assert that he separated from us the year before who was not with us at our sacrament, but this would be but false this would be but a false foundation to build the assertion upon either side. But that this assertion is entirely false is plain by Mr. Craighead's giving in the reasons of his withdrawing from the presbytery and that he was not separated from them. For if so, to what purpose would it be to have given reasons for that which was done already? Nay, if he had already separated from them as unsound, what had they to do to receive his reasons? Or how could he have offered the reasons to them, much less proposed terms to them, for his reasons of reunion with them? 2. Mr. Blair says, page 12, speaking of the civil magistrate, quote, But that he may punish persons merely for entertaining erroneous principles is a groundless, unreasonable notion, end quote. Here is a wonderful criticizing upon a word which it will in nowhere, no wise bear. For a person cannot be known to men that he is erroneous unless he discover it either by word, profession, or practice. And it is manifest both by the words cited in the eighth page of the preface and from the act itself in the seventh page that it is the professing of errors that is intended by what is said. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Thank you. But this is much like the false gloss that the author puts upon many things. Besides his endeavoring to vindicate that erroneous act of the pretended synod, as he did Mr. Whitfield's errors, Mr. Blair saith, page 23, and that he will be accountable to no superior judicatory on earth, that is directly false, for never such a word hath he spoken, excuse me, hath he written, spoken, or come into his thought. But the reverse is truth, to wit, that we look upon ourselves, all of us, accountable to any faithful judicator, 
superior to a session of the true Reformed and Covenanted Presbyterian Church of Scotland, or any part of it, and should look upon it as a great privilege to enjoy the opportunity of any such judicatory. 26 page. The author saith, It is false, in fact, that the generality of ministers and people took these oaths that were imposed in King Charles II's time. This indeed looks something arrogant-like for a person to assert a falsehood, falsehood on another without any ground or shadow of proof. Tis admirable what all this proceeds from, but tis too plain that neither good manners, good parts, or truth is regarded. To wit, that what the author asserted was false appears from Mr. Woodard's, that's W-O, what, excuse me, Woodrow's, W-O-D-R-O-W, apostrophe S, history, which he hath the opportunity of, volume 1, pages 22 and 23, concurring the oath of allegiance, page 26, of an instrument assertatory of the king's prerogative, page 278, of the bond of peace, this generally signed, page 287 and 308 of the indulgence, appendix, page 124 of the oath of supremacy, page 173 and 174 of a bond concerning wives, children, and servants, and cotters, volume 2, page 193-194 of another oath, page 436 of the oath of abjuration and another command for taking it page 476 and 495 persons were condemned to die for refusing the oath of allegiance supremacy and abjuration hence you may perceive that not only the generality of persons and in all ranks took these oaths instruments tests bonds and almost the universality of persons except such as oppose them, all which were but few in number in respect to compliers. Fifth, Mr. Blair saith, page 33, If Mr. Craighead so swears to the directory, he must pray for all in authority, especially for the king's majesty. This doth not appear like truth. One, because the directory must agree with the covenants, they being received by the same assembly that composed it. The covenants expressly bind persons to magistrates in defense of the true Reformed Presbyterian religion and not to the opposite of it. Two, because there is no parallel between the persons which used authority then and now, for they were then only endeavoring to bring in prelacy and vigorously opposed, and now it is established by a law or the ruins of a Presbyterian religion. There is also a wide difference in the rights to rule and in their qualifications to rule. 6. six page 35. How unjust it is in Mr. Craighead to talk at this rate as if we deny part of the confession of faith. End quote. That they do deny part of the confession of faith, their own declaration and their public acts doth evidence. And in the same page, Mr. Blair saith, quote, and he knoweth that we maintain and preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. End quote. Had Mr. Blair said he knew that they maintained some gospel truths and preach from the word of God sometimes, which is true in itself, we could agree in this, but not as he writes, for tis evident that they maintain many errors, as, such as their terms of communion and others. Things in many of their sermons are false, as, to, to, as is too evident. As for instance, several things in two sermons at White Clay Creek, one at Poquet, another at Paxton, and the frequent explaining the first part of the 13th chapter of the Romans. Seventh, in the 26th page, he saith, quote, One that will say this for anything he knew, he may say on anything that co- that's contrary to all experience, end quote. Let any unprejudiced person consider how ill this passage agrees with the word of God and how much it looks like a direct contradiction of the words of Christ Jesus. Matthew 23, verse 29 to the 37th verse. The Pharisees pretended love to the holy prophets by building their tombs. So the pretended Presbyterians, they pretend love to the martyrs and covenanted cause by professing that they were right in dying for it and that it was agreeable to God's word, yet never employed pen nor tongue in the vindication of it. 
but both are employed in opposition of it, as is undeniable from the piece before me and from the sermon mentioned and many others. 2. The Pharisees say, If they had been in the days of their fathers, they would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. One author says, Do we swear that the king is the only supreme judge in all causes? Do we subject ourselves to be governed by diocesan bishops in our ministerial office? He might have added, Do we shed the blood of the covenanters? Mr. Blair cannot have just ground to deny that he and the generality of his associates are the children of them that did all these things, or hath he or any of his adherents forsaken that same course of apostasy, perjury, blood guiltiness, and backsliding, that their forefathers walked in when these things were done. Again, Mr. Blair and his adherents own subjection to the person that is sworn to be the supreme judge of all causes, civil and ecclesiastic, and joins with them many ways which are actually sworn to. They join in subjection to them, confederacy with them, in praying for them, and in endeavoring to vindicate their right to exercise power and the goodness of the exercise. How this agrees with Second Chronicles 19, verse 2, the judicious reader may judge, and whether, according to the law of God and man, there is much difference between Mr. Blair, his adherents, and those that did swear all these things. Again, Mr. Blair cannot on any good ground deny that diocesan bishops have a great hand in the government of the realm, and if he should, say, and if he should that, commonly, that common proverbs proves it, no bishop, no king. Now, that all the members of the pretended presbyteries of New Brunswick and New Castle that call themselves ministers do submit their ministry to the aforesaid government, their own declaration is a certain proof of. Again, it cannot be denied on any just ground that some who join in with Mr. Blair that are under the character of ministers, magistrates, and common people who have used no small endeavors to incense and exasperate those that have the management of the government in their hands against those that profess the true Presbyterian Reformed and Covenanted religion and that only approve of that practice which is agreeable thereto and conformable to the same. If the truth of this be called in question, the names of not a few of the persons that have done so can be produced and the persons of whom they have dealt for this end. Now, it is difficult to tell how such persons in their stations can come near to the shedding of our blood until they come to the action itself, the want or lack of which is evident to a demonstration is not for want or a lack of will to do it, but for want of power, permission or opportunity. But glory forever to our glorious King and Lawgiver, that hath taught some of us to hold our lives beyond the utmost line of any created being, and not to fear them that kill the body. May the blessed God forgive that unhappy cre these unhappy creatures and convince them of their sin. 8. Mr. Blair saith, page 44, quote, Only that I know, Mr. Craighead saw this explication long before he published these reasons, end quote. Mr. Blair had need to comment on this passage to keep it from downright clashing with what he had said concerning Mr. Craighead's separation, page 7. For there he saith that in the most open and public manner he had separated from them, when Mr. Craighead had, not, had, not, had only not gone to his sacrament. And there he asserts that he had seen the explication long before he published his reasons, whereas the truth is that the reasons were published publicly read before the presbytery, such as it was, and left amongst them either a day or two before Mr. Craig had heard or saw the explication, to the best of his memory. And if that was not a publishing of them, it is wonderful, unless it must pass like many things else, that they were not published because Mr. Blair says so, which is a very slender proof when his say-sos evidently, evidently contradict one another's although, upon a review of the remarks made by Mr. Gilbert Tennant, T-E-N-N-E-N-T, -E -N -N -E letter, we find no just ground to justify them, they savoring too much of grace being the proper turn of communion, 
which is agreeable unto that corrupt principle that which we have imbibed and too long continued in. Thirdly, some remarks upon a preface submitted by Mr. Samuel Finlay, F-I-N-L-A-Y, in a book concerning the Moravians, M-O-R-A-V-I-A-N-S. Remark 1, fourth page. Here is one who finds not half the delight and pleasure in the whole system of divine revelation as in one single controverted piece, vis-a-vis, of the Solemn League and Covenant. 1. This is exceedingly rash judging, very contrary to the Word of God. Matthew 7, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. 2. It is a notorious falsehood, which the Holy God and several of our own souls are witnesses unto. Had the author in this the common exercise of reason, he would have been afraid to utter such a bold and presumptuous assertion. For certainly, at best, he hath asserted that which, if it were true, none but God alone could determine, who only knows the secrets of all hearts, which discovers the assertion to be only ridiculous and upon a right reflex, thought cannot but appear unto the author himself to be a manifest falsehood. Remark 2 is of that odious, groundless, and directly untrue comparison used by the author in pages 4, 5, and 6 betwixt true Presbyterians and the Moravians. That is, that it is no less than what is said the author himself undeniably proves, page 8. But let none mistake me as if I set the Moravians and those that insist on the covenants on the same level in everything or that real Christians can as readily be on one side as the other. No, the latter have infinitely the preference because they hold the truth of religion. But the Moravians corrupt it wholly. End quote. Let the reader pause a little here and consider if the author hath not plainly laid himself open to that doom. Luke 12:47. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself neither did according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. It is very wonderful how the blessed God overrules persons whose plain design is to overturn the cause of God, and yet sometimes are exhorted to witness for God against themselves, as it evidently is the case of the author who hath clearly asserted that the covenanters hold the truth of religion without reserve Whereas he, against his own life, discovered by his own acknowledgment, opposeth and ridiculeth this very religion, comparing the Moravians and the professors of it together. How ill this practice doth agree with Jude 3. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Remark 3. The author asserts, pages 6 and 7, quote, that the grounds of Mr. Craighead's separation are such as the scriptures will not warrant a separation unto. This he doth not prove by any scripture or anything but his say-so. I'm sorry, the quote ended upon a separation unto, end quote. This he doth not prove by any scripture or anything but his say-so, which, alas, too evidently appears to be of no great value that there was just enough ground of separation appears from the treatment that persons met with merely for endeavoring to vindicate a true reformed religion and to prevail with them to compel comply with it. Most in the province have heard the epitaphs persons have given them on this account, such as the vis of persons, mars of the work of grace, and such like, which are plain proof that the doors of the pretended ecclesiastical judicatories are fast shut against anything against a true reformation of the church and that she is fundamentally corrupted and that while she remains so there is no other method that is in the power of the smallest number to do agreeable to the word of God and the true covenanted reformed Presbyterian rules but by withdrawing or receding from this harlot church see the informatory vindication head forth in the book termed The Plain Reasons. Remark 4, page 7. He hath set the case in such an unfair light, yea, false light. If such an accusation be just, when the author doth not give the least instance or proof of the case being perverted, 
Let the judicious and impartial reader judge, or how little weight should be given to such assertions. 1 Timothy 5.19 Remark 5, saith page 7, speaking of Christ's cross, quote, His is made ready to my hand, end quote. The author might be asked whether that did not look like a cross that was made to his hand when he was stopped in the exercise of the ministry until he took an oath. Can any say that this was a cross of the author's own making? Or again, can any say that it was no cross if he was truly preaching Christ and could not leave to continue therein without taking the oath? Which appears to be the case by his own report. Now the question is whether, according to the author's own words in describing the cross of Christ, that was not the cross of Christ to which he had nothing to do but to take it up? Surely it was looked very surely it looked very like the cross of Christ, although he found a method to escape it, yet not to the glory of God, but to his own. Malachi Matthew, excuse me, Matthew ten, verse thirty nine He that findeth his life shall lose it. Whether the fear of man did not prevail above the fear of God in that affair, the reader may judge. Remark 6. The author boasts much, page 8, that he hath drawn the sword. It appears that the author hath not well remembered 1 Kings 20, verse 11. Let, him not, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. Tis too common for young soldiers to brag of their valor before they well know what they are about, which is small prudence. There is little ground for of boasting of a drawn sword when the point thereof is turned in towards the bowels of the person that wears it. If the author will boast of such an exploit that he hath girded on his sword and resolves to continue the combat, although it is turned to his own bowels, let him remember still that self-murder of all murder is the worst. Fourthly, some remarks upon a small piece entitled The Examiner Examined by Mr. Gilbert Tennant, T-E-N-N-E-N-T. Remark 1, page 120. Mr. Tennant saith, quote, My soul abhors the sordid meanness and contradicted views of bigotry and party zeal, end quote. Mr. Tennant, by party zeal, understands the making of factions or parties in opposition to the true cause of God that his soul should abhor. This is very agreeable to the word of God. Romans 16, verse 17. Mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. But if he means any party, though right and honest to the cause of God, separating themselves from all churches that are fundamentally corrupted, as hath been proven that the pretended Presbyterian church in these parts is, and that they zealously contend and strive to maintain and uphold that party, though never so small, and oppose all other parties without exception, to say that his soul abhors such a party, which appears to be his meaning, he may as well say his soul abhors obedience to God's commands. For as there is but one true church, so we are commanded to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Jude 3. And we are commanded to withdraw from every brother that walketh disorderly. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 6. Bigotry properly signifies stiffness or obstinacy in that which is either wrong or not worth the striving or contending about and so cannot properly be applied to persons contending for the true cause of God. For in this we cannot be too vigorous. Remark number two. In the same page, Mr. Tennant says, quote, that Mr. Craighead, who was formerly in a state of union with us, but having more zeal and positiveness than knowledge and judgment, hath schismatically broken communion with us and adapted and adopted the rigid Cameronian scheme. End quote. One, as to the Reverend Mr. Richard Cameron, who was as true and faithful to the cause of God as anyone in his day, and who valiantly sealed the true covenanted Reformed Presbyterian cause with his own blood in the field of battle, which he had professed, from whom true Presbyterians have been frequently termed Cameronians by some to this day, although tis true that some that did go under this name and appeared steadfast until William Henry came to the throne, 
by whom they were deceived and carried away, carried away from the truth to follow him, and yet retains the name of the Cameronian Regiment. And it may be that Mr. Tennant means by the rigid Cameronians those who continued steadfast in the faith and did not turn away with William Henry and the rest that were corrupt. 2. It appears plain that Mr. Tennant disowns or that that he or those that join with him are of the Cameronian scheme, that is, are true Presbyterians. For this Mr. Cameron was and hath been said and well known to be such. And Mr. Tennant asserts that Mr. Craighead was in the union with them, but hath broken off communion with them and adopted the rigid Cameronian scheme, which is an undeniable evidence that he doth not look upon himself or any of his brethren in the ministry that join with him, that joins with him, are of this scheme, or it would be absurd to say that Mr. Craighead had broken communion with them and adopted the rigid Cameronian scheme, if it was a, the scheme that they had adopted while Mr. Craighead was with them. But lest persons should not rightly understand that Mr. Tennant had entirely renounced the true, covenanted, and reformed Presbyterian religion by that which is above, in the same page he saith, quote, I think the Reverend Mr. Whitfield's observations in one of his letters concerning the covenanting scheme is very just and true, vis that it is too narrow a foundation to build any great superstructure upon. This ends tape two of Renewal of the Covenants by Alexander Craighead. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Renewal of the Covenants by Alexander Craighead, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.